This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project training youth to harness the power of media. I'm Kateri Zuni. Tonight on this special edition of Generation Justice, we invite you into a discussion on the surveillance state. We'll look at its history, its impact on communities of color, and the steps necessary to empower our communities against it. For this panel discussion, Power, Not Paranoia, we joined an incredible national organization, the Center for Media Justice, which along with Magnet, or Media Action Grassroots Network, fight for the digital rights of poor people and people of color. Panelists tonight include Aaron Dixon, author of My People Are Rising and co-founder of the Seattle chapter of the Black Panther Party. Maesha Hayes, the national organizer on criminal justice and technology at the Center for Media Justice. Paul Heidel, an attorney and criminal justice advocate for the ACLU New Mexico. And Eduardo Esquivel, a student of biochemistry at UNM and the education and equity trainer for the New Mexico Dream Team. This panel was held at La Placita Institute in the South Valley of Albuquerque and is moderated by Generation Justice Director Roberta Rael. We'll start with an introduction from Steven Renderos, Organizing Director at the Center for Media Justice. Enjoy. I just want to say um, it's a real honor to be in this space. I have to say that um, it's a pleasure and an honor to be back here. Um, part of the reason that the Center for Media Justice, an organization that's based in Oakland, California, is here uh, is because we want to, one, be in community with you all, and two, um, be able to provide some support to the folks here on the ground. We're an organization that um, fights for the digital rights of poor people and people of color in the United States. Um, we believe that the right to communicate belongs to everyone. And if, if we have the right to communicate, we have the ability to transform our world. Um, we manage a national network called the Media Action Grassroots Network, um, or Magnet for short. Generation Justice is one of like our long-term members, one of our leaders within this network. Um, so I've, I've had the privilege uh, of working with, with groups like Generation Justice for several years now. Um, one of the, the genesis behind um, us coming here and this event that we're doing tonight is probably like most of you in this room, I, I felt a real sadness and a real deepness, um, a real dread um, after Trump was elected. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is a lot of the issues that we'd been working on as an organization had been trying to fight campaigns to limit the power of surveillance technologies in this country because they'd become so vastly uh, available. And realizing that all these technologies that exist in local police departments that are at the disposal of federal agencies like the FBI were now at the hands of you know, a white supremacist authoritarian like Donald Trump was a very scary thought. And shortly after that, I had a conversation with Roberta and we talked about we need to, we need to do something to bring some sort of support to our local communities, folks that are doing organizing on the ground, folks that are using tools like social media to get their voices out there so that we can do some protecting of ourselves and talk about some of the issues that are surrounding this dread of fear around surveillance. Um, so that's, you know, this event tonight, Power Not Paranoia, is really grounded in this idea that the solutions for a lot of the issues that we're fighting on um, exist right here within our communities. Um, and so it's a pleasure to be in a, in a space like La Placita Institute that uses culture as a way, as an as a entry point towards healing. 
Um, so with that, um, I'm going to pass it to uh, Roberta Rael, the Executive Director at Generation Justice, who will be moderating a very excellent panel with some very amazing people, including one of my colleagues. So pass it to you. Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes, les de Dios. It's really a pleasure to be here. As uh, Stephen mentioned, we've been working on this for a really long time. And I'm really so honored that each one of these panelists, each one of these individuals said yes to spending their evening with us this evening. I'm just going to get right into the panel. Sitting to my right is Aaron Dixon. He was born in Chicago, grew up in the, in the Seattle area, and as a, stu a college student at the University of Washington, he played a key role in the formation of the Black Student Union and the Seattle chapter of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Aaron helped to organize during that college time. He was appointed the captain of the Seattle Black Panther Party, where he led his, the first chapter outside of Oakland through its first four years. He was 19. He moved to party national headquarters in Oakland in 1972. In 2006, Aaron ran as a Green Party candidate for the U.S. Senate seat in Washington State. He founded the Center for Social Justice, and in 2012, he authored his autobiography, My People Are Rising, memoir of a Black Panther Party captain. Aaron brings this evening an understanding of surveillance from the 60s and 70s. Sitting next to Erin is Maisha Hayes, and she is the national organizer on criminal justice and technology for the Center for Media Justice. And she brings several years of organizing experience with her from various national and local campaigns, including working on President Obama's reelection, Fight for 15, and the Close Rikers campaign. Maesha focuses on high-tech policing, including body-worn cameras, predictive algorithms in policing and risk assessments, and general issues of surveillance. She's a graduate of Occidental College in the West Coast, but she actually lives in Brooklyn, New York, in the East Coast. And we welcome you her first time to New Mexico. We also have Paul Heidel. He's an attorney and criminal justice advocate with the ACLU of New Mexico. Paul advocates for smarter laws and better criminal justice policies in New Mexico. He works closely with a broad coalition of organizations and community members to achieve those goals. Prior to joining the ACLU, he served as the director of, of a criminal records program in the Chicago area. He has extensive courtroom experience in some of the busiest felony courtrooms in America. He has secured executive clemency for many of his clients. So we welcome you, Paul, and um, it would absolutely be fitting that the ACLU would be sitting with us at this panel tonight. Next to Paul, we have Eduardo Esquivel. He is the education equity trainer for the New Mexico Dream Team. At the age of seven, Eduardo immigrated to Albuquerque with his parents from Chihuahua, Chihuahua, Mexico. Eduardo is working on a degree in biochemistry at UNM and has plans to follow up with um, medical school or another field within the area. 
He hopes to incorporate his deep-seated passion for social justice, nonviolence, and promoting positive peace into the movement that he stands as a leader today. He has trained faculty from APS, which is an incredibly important place for instituting change. So welcome, Eduardo. Yes, please, can we welcome our panel? So Aaron, we're gonna start with you, and I do want to have you share with us a little bit about the history that you've experienced, your lived experience as an activist, as an organizer, with regard to how surveillance was utilized at that point in time, how activists were surveilled, and um, some of those tactics that were utilized by the state to uh, curtail the organizing, that, the important organizing that was happening at that time. Well, um, first let me just start off by saying I grew up in an era of political assassinations. President uh, John F. Kennedy, Medgar Evers, um, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy, and Fred Hampton, and Mark Clark, and uh, Bunchy Carter. But I think the first uh, surveillance that we noticed was the tap phone. You know, you would always hear that little click on the phone. So we had to uh, come up with uh, ways of not saying anything on the phone, being careful what we said, using code words for certain things, and uh, also using a payphone, running to the payphone. When the uh, Black Panther Party formed in 1968, uh, Richard Nixon, J. Edgar Hoover, Attorney General John Mitchell stated on television news that the Black Panther Party was the number one threat to the security of America. Uh, now, we took this as an honor that they felt that we were such a big threat but we had no idea that they had a secret program that they were going to enact. And part of that secret program was infiltration by local police departments and federal police departments. So you had FBI agents, you had uh, people who worked for the uh, local police departments who infiltrated uh, not just the Black Panther Party, the BSU and m many other organizations. Also, uh, one, the other tactic that they used against us was uh, disinformation. Uh, the, first of all, they controlled the media and they, you know, made sure that we were portrayed as gangsters and thugs and hoodlums. We used to say in the party that power is the ability to define phenomena and make it act in a desired manner. What that basically means, who controls the media, controls how it's conveyed to the people. And that's why we had a newspaper called the Black Panther Party newspaper. But as I was saying, disinformation, for example, they would send letters to people that we know that we did not get along with organizations. They sent letters to uh, Black Panther Party members who were in exile, they sent letters to Huey P. Newton, and these letters were very derogatory and very threatening, and it created a split in the organization. It did a lot of damage to the organization. So they used all kinds of, uh, of methods 
you know, they had constant surveillance on us. So, but one thing, and I, I heard someone say here, uh, where actually it's the name of this event, is the word power and, uh, and, and paranoia. And we were, we were paranoid. We were somewhat paranoid. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But the thing that we had to our advantage was that we felt the power. We felt that we had the power. We felt because we were working with the people, and we always said power, uh, all power to the people. The people have the power. So that's why we worked for the people. We knew we had the people behind us, so we felt that we had the power. Then there was the assassinations, you know, that was the other tactic that they used, uh, was killing party members. They killed uh, Bunchy Carter, who was, they assassinated Bunchy Carter, and they did it through another organization called the US Organization. And uh, Bunchy Carter was head of the Southern California chapter of the Black Panther Party, which was the most powerful chapter outside of Oakland. And Bunchy was a dynamic human being. He was, uh, he was called the mayor of the ghetto because he had been head of the Slauson's gang, 5,000 strong, before he became a member of the Black Panther Party. So they killed him, and the, and the L.A. chapter was never the same. And uh, about nine months later, they assassinated Fred Hampton. <clears throat> and uh, Fred Hampton was, he was Martin Luther King and Malcolm X all rolled into one. He was a powerful, beautiful human being. He loved the people, and uh, he knew he was going to die, and so he was assassinated. So I had, I had a couple of assassination attempts on my life, uh, myself in Seattle. And in uh, one of those assassination attempts, they got hold of some of my shotgun shells and took the uh, gunpowder out and put high explosives in there. So when I went out and tested the, uh, the shotgun, uh, I, I, I didn't fire from my shoulder. Uh, I pulled the trigger and it blew up and almost blew my arm off. You know, my arm was hanging off and it was, uh, they were going to amputate it, but my mother said, no, glad she did. Thank you so much for that history, Aaron, and for reminding us um, and actually teaching us because that still is history that is not taught to everybody. So I really thank you for that. I want to go to you, to you Maisha, um, and I'm hoping that you don't mind, before we start getting further into the discussion, if you could just kind of de demystify some of it. So when we're talking about algorithms, for example, um, if you could like let us know what that means, and then if there's anything else you want to add, that'd be fine. Thank you. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think the important context to consider right now is the fact that um, after the last few years, we're seeing a lot of powerful, um, we're seeing folks build really powerful movements to end mass incarceration, right? Um, and one example that I love to point to is the Coles Rikers campaign, where um, in under a year, we were able to push the mayor, Mayor um, Bill de Blasio, to put into public policy actually closing Rikers. Um, which was a huge deal, and you're seeing activists and organizers do the same thing across the country. Um, but what the question now that folks are kind of contending with is, how do you actually reduce our incarcerated population, right? And so the response from the state often includes these technological solutions. Um, 
So in terms of algorithms, a way to think about algorithms are basically math equations. And they try to predict people's behavior based on information on what similar people have done, right? And so they're being used in pretrial risk assessments um, to help make determinations about who should be released from jail. And this is really important to understand um, because of the movements to end mass incarceration. People have to think about bail reform. Um, over 60 to 70% of folks across the country that are being detained inside of our jails are there because of bail or um, speedy trial issues, but oftentimes a bail issue. Um, and so these algorithms inside of these pre-trial risk assessments are being used as a solution. But the problem with these algorithms is that it's using data that is really a reflection of where people are being arrested and who's actually targeted by the criminal justice system. It's not actually a reflection of criminal behavior or where crime is happening. And I think a really good example of this is the pretrial risk assessments that are being used in Philly, where the heaviest indicator is zip code. Now, I know in New York, where I'm from, there are very specific zip codes that are uh, being heavily policed by NYPD, right? And so if we were to use that information, basically these algorithms are kind of reinforcing the racial disparities that we see within our criminal justice system. So one of the things that you know, we're working on is really building out um, solutions so that advocates and organizers are all on the same page about the fact that if we're going to use these algorithms, there should be really strict oversight and that these algorithms should really be used to you know, reduce our incarceration, our population. Thank you very much. For both Eduardo and Paul, whether we're talking about it in the past or in our present time, surveillance is justified by the government, by the state, as a way to keep us safe. And safety means something different when you're in a space of community, when you're in a space of family. And so I, I know both of you are, are so engaged in the work of safety for our community. So I want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about um, what does safety look like? And um, Eduardo, if I could start with you and then we'll come back to Paul. In the, the immigrants' right, rights movement, um, which is currently one of the, the biggest topics in, in, in politics, the subject of fear is, is, is the primary operator when it comes down to progressing a narrative. The Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, made a statement um, in Austin, Texas, in support of uh, SB4 that would allow local police departments and sheriff's departments to inquire about immigration status during pretty much any interaction. Now this opens up the doors to law enforcement to categorize their enforcement based on what an undocumented immigrant looks like. And this is all very much intrinsically tied to the rhetoric of fear going around mainstream politics, with, most specifically with this administration. So if you can stoke the, the fears of people by scapegoating immigrants, uh, which is a very useful tactic and is historically been used in the United States, you can use that argument of safety. And 
increasingly using local police departments and sheriff's department to do to conduct that federal immigration law enforcement. That perhaps, even though there is increased militarization and increased surveillance tactics along the border, a lot of these things that are given to the Department of Homeland Security, either directly to the uh, Border Patrol or ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, um, is not as much as police are getting. They're not getting, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, they're not getting as many of these uh, Stingray devices or interception devices to figure out communications. But because if they're able, once they're able to use the resources allotted to local law enforcement, then they can further employ these tactics of surveillance as long as they get you know, that public support from, from the stoking of, of fear, scapegoating immigrants, and, and, and continuously using that rhetoric. Yeah, I want to pick up on what you're saying, Eduardo, about the fear thing. And I have a friend who talks about there's only uh, two forces in the world. One is love and one is fear. And all actions stem from either one of those places, from love or from fear. And I think what we're seeing in the criminal justice system right now in New Mexico is a lot of fear-mongering, too. And we know that we've got crime going on uh, here in Albuquerque, and we acknowledge that. Um, but when you listen to the mainstream media and some of the politicians and what the solutions are, it's a get tough on crime mentality that's been tried for many years, for decades, and it hasn't worked. In fact, it's led us into the crisis that we're in. And so for those of you that aren't from New Mexico, I just wanna throw a couple things out there because they're really related to safety. We have a terrible behavioral health system here in New Mexico that our governor really eviscerated and tore down from within. We have an opioid crisis here in New Mexico. We have the highest percentage of people in jail in the entire country in New Mexico going to the pretrial detention. We have the highest number of kids with incarcerated parents in New Mexico. We have some of the highest poverty rates and we have some of the highest unemployment. And that's where safety comes in because what is real safety? Real safety is not tough on crime attitudes that incarcerate more people. Real safety comes from that place of love. It's building up communities with education, with jobs, with behavioral health services, with substance abuse services for people that need them. So we, as a community and as New Mexicans, we have power as people to make change at our roundhouse, and there is real hope in this. And I want to point out that during this last legislative session, this is something I, I work on for the ACLU, uh, we had a lot of good bills that were passed, and unfortunately our governor vetoed many of those good bills. There is real hope moving forward that politically we will be in a different situation in this state and that we will move forward good criminal justice policies that are smart on crime, that actually make communities safer and build up communities from that place of love instead of that place of fear. Thank you, Paul. I'm going to stay with you, Paul, and um, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what the ACLU um, knows about the type of tools and technology that APS is using, APD, excuse me, APD and um, the county sheriff's department, what they have available. Okay, thank you. That's a, that's a really great question. Um, many of you probably know this, but again, for the folks who might not be from uh, New Mexico, our police department here in Albuquerque, the Albuquerque Police Department, or APD, is under a consent decree with the Department of Justice because uh, we have severe problems with police brutality in our city um, and the treatment of homeless people, the treatment of people with mental illness. Um, and the Department of Justice had to come into town to try and set things right. So we're currently in a process 
where the Department of Justice is putting new policies and procedures into place that are supposed to make the police department treat people with respect. There was a time here uh, in 2012 to 2014 where the Albuquerque Police Department were killing unarmed men, almost one man per month, and that's what brought the Department of Justice to town. That's, that's insane. And so what's happening right now with some of the reforms in the police department is we're seeing uh, a closer look at some of these technologies that they're using for surveillance. And some of the things that we know about are the body-worn cameras. Albuquerque was actually one of the first major cities to have body-worn cameras uh, by their police officers. We know, though, that there's lots of problems with when those officers turn those cameras off um, or don't you know, purposely leave them off, uh, and there hasn't been repercussions for those officers. And we've got some very high-profile cases that I know many of you are aware of uh, where people have been shot and killed, and they come to find that the lapel camera had been turned off, uh, and there's, there's probably a reason why it was turned off. So uh, we need to do better on that front. Um, we also know that there's something called the Real-Time Crime Center here in Albuquerque, and that's a program that our mayor has put in place uh, that essentially is uh, surveillance technology. Uh, many of you have probably seen these devices. It's like a, it looks like a generator that's pulled behind a truck, uh, and it's got a tower that goes way up in the air with cameras and microphones all over it. They're often parked when there's a First Amendment protest, a demonstration. Uh, sometimes there's one right downtown uh, right now uh, where they're building that new building across from the train station, and they're monitoring homeless people, and they're monitoring to see what's going on in the area. Um, and so that's, that's something that is brought out um, all the time that links right back to a center uh, that Albuquerque Police Department runs where they have people monitoring cameras around the clock and listening to what people are saying. Uh, that's particularly troubling when they roll that thing out at a protest. Uh, there's an example that um, some of us from the ACLU um, were involved in where there was a protest that was happening over at T-Way Park earlier this year and it was going uh, to be a lot of undocumented people who were invited to speak on stage and the police department rolled this thing out and parked it right in front of the stage with a bunch of cameras and a bunch of microphones on it as if to say, we're watching you, we know who you are, and we can share this with whoever we want. So fortunately, in that case, we were able to get that removed before the protest started, but that's an example of uh, intimidation that comes from our, our police department. The last thing I want to say is that it's not really surveillance technology related, but it's, it's technology that we're all carrying around in our pockets, right? And that's, that's our cell phones and our social media accounts. So I got to go to a, a, a great training earlier today that was talking about the number of police departments around the country that are monitoring social media and that have their own social media accounts and how easy it is to access everyone's post. Uh, you know, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, uh, and we're talking in the context of people who uh, may be on probation or parole, how easy it is to get violated if they see a picture that's on there that looks like anything that might not be according to the probation conditions. Uh, the police can really use that tool, and, and so it's just uh, anything that we're putting out there. We, we love social media these days, right? And I think back Back in the 60s and 70s, people were more like private and we don't want to share everything about our lives. And now we're like, oh, I'll share everything. But when we're doing that, we're sharing it with all of our friends, with all of our communities and, and the police department. And they are watching us and they are using that to our, our detriment. So just a word to the wise about that. Eduardo, I would like to uh, ask you a similar question um, with regard to ICE and what, what uh, United We Dream and the, the New Mexico Dream Team knows that um, ICE is using in order to um, 
track, surveil, and um, terrify uh, immigrant families and mixed status families. So the vast majority of the law enforcement conducted by ICE is done via raids. So whether that is a home raid, workplace raid, um, or even in like at a bus stop, something like that. The thing about conducting enforcement through raids is that oftentimes for them to be successful is they need to have a warrant, um, at least in, in theory. But, um, and because of that, their, their capabilities are, are somewhat limited. It, it falls into when someone starts going through the, the courts systems. Maybe they got a ticket or they got arrested uh, for whatever reason. Once you're arrested, you're, all your biometrics are taken. Um, all that information gets sent to a database shared by all um, major agencies, major government agencies, including ICE, you know, the Department of Homeland Security. And so they get notified, and then ICE can put a detainer hold on that person, instructing the local police department to hold that person so that ICE can come and put them through deportation proceedings. What we see nationally happening is that push to have local law enforcement more intrinsically tied into conducting that enforcement and that information gathering because they are limited. I'm saying this theoretically because we have seen ICE officers do things that they're technically not supposed to do. Just a few days ago, they entered into uh, a construction site where someone was working and did not identify themselves as they're supposed to, did not say what agency they were coming from, and apprehended this man who was later released. Um, so they're doing a lot, of, a lot of the enforcement that is happening is, is not really shown to the public, but it really is incorporating all that, the technology that the lo those local police departments are using, whether it's the facial recognition technology of the surveillance cameras or, or, or whatever else. And social media really is something that is, is increasingly used um, as you have police running accounts, building profiles off of activists, off of even community members. And especially with being undocumented, there's a, there's a higher risk because it doesn't take much to, to get you deported, right? Another thing that's being employed is using the general public, right? Using the general public as a sort of community policing in the most negative way of thinking about it. And in fact, here at the, univer at the University of New Mexico, when you had one of those alt-right people brought to campus, he put up the number to ICE and said, deport your local illegals. Even though that's not officially ICE or Department of Homeland Security protocol, it's something that has been utilized to identify people and put them in the process of deportation. And if not into processes of deportation, then at least into detention centers, where we do see that people are, without criminal records are being removed at higher rates because these private corporations that run the detention centers cannot make money of people without criminal records. So there's an active criminalization using local technology and then, uh, you know, of course, using that, the, the rhetoric to have the local population um, report people and, and do that. Thank you, Eduardo. Welcome back to Generation Justice, where tonight we take a listen to the Power Not Paranoia panel discussion on the history and current state of surveillance in our country. The panel includes Aaron Dixon, 
author and co-founder of the Seattle chapter of the Black Panther Party. Maisha Hayes, the national organizer on criminal justice and technology at the Center for Media Justice. Paul Heidel, an attorney and criminal justice advocate for ACLU New Mexico. And Eduardo Esquivel, a UNM student of biochemistry and education and equity trainer for the New Mexico Dream Team. Let's rejoin the discussion. And now I want to go to Maisha and um, policing and the invasive technology that's utilized is also being utilized in the criminal justice system. What is influencing the use of that technology? Sure, well, I think to speak to what's influencing the use of these technologies is really the fact that um, people are doing great work trying to end mass incarceration and the state's response is to use technology as a response um, and as a solution. So going back to this conversation around um, bail reform and pretrial um, detention, right? So they're using these algorithms to help them determine you know, who should be released and who shouldn't be released. And another uh, technological solution that's being uh, offered is electronic monitoring, which basically doesn't really address the problem of incarceration. It just shifts the site of incarceration into our communities in a really harmful way because oftentimes folks are charged um, for the use of, the, of these devices. They're charged to set up the device. They're charged to um, a daily fee of the device. So like, you know, a good example of that is in Cook County, um, black folks make about 24% of the population, but they represent, you know, 70% of those that are on um, these devices, right? Um, so, you know, again, going back to like what the solution is, like real solutions, which are not really electronic monitoring, really has to do with respecting the rights and dignity of those who are on these devices, meaning that they should have freedom of movement um, to go about their daily lives to meet you know, their daily needs. Thank you. There's so much with all of this. Um, and we are, I know, just really skimming the surface this evening. Um, but Erin, I want to come back to you. And um, you, you spoke earlier so um, eloquently and honestly about your experience. Um, and you have this book that you've written, um, My People Are Rising. I see you have a couple of copies here this evening. Um, I'd like for you to just talk a little bit about what you're seeing today with the movement today. And I'm going to sidebar just a little bit. When we talk about media literacy and the use of language, one of the things that frequently happens when we talk about all of these issues is we use separatist language. And we say, oh, that was your movement, the Black Panther movement, which is different than the Chicano movement, which was different than AIM at that time. And we talk about that time of life as very different as, than this time of life. And part of how we train at Generation Justice is that the use of language is so important and that we try not to use separatist language. There's only been one movement, one movement for human rights, for civil rights. It's only been one movement. You were part of that movement 
at 19. I was part of that movement at 19. We're still part of that movement. And the movement that's happening today is the same movement. There's no separatist thinking or language that we want to use about that. So sorry for the sidebar, but I would love for you to just talk a little bit about your experience as a young person and what your children are experiencing today and the movement as it stands today. I grew up in segregation as most black people and people of color did. That really had a positive effect because we were able to build a sense of community and we supported each other. We had a cultural value system just like any other culture, you know, that the uh, family is the most important unit. Elders are to be respected and the children are to be protected by everybody. And we have what was called the um, oral tradition that the uh, grandparents and aunts and uncles would uh, always tell you stories about the family history and about the things that occurred in their lives. This was a way of making sure we understood uh, that we had a purpose in life uh, beyond just our, you know, individual selves. And a lot of that has changed, and uh, individualism has really become very much a part of this culture. They push it at every second they can, you know, on all the TV shows, you know, where the mass media has completely taken over. We can watch movies 24 hours a day. We, You know, we have news 24 hours a day, we have sports 24 hours a day. You know, there's no separation in time. You know, people often say, you know, that time is moving so fast, and it is because we have no separation. We have no time for contemplation. And it's important to have time to contemplate so that you can come up with solutions to the things that you need to come up with. I think the most important thing that we we're, we're really have to struggle with today is, you know, during the era of the Black Panther Party, we said all power to the people. We made it very clear that this was not a movement just about black people. It was about all oppressed people all over the world. There was that unity that existed. And we have to get back to that. We have to, we, we're losing our connection to one another as human beings. And this technology is playing a big role in that. You know, and, and I think that is the most important thing that we have to do today is, is we have to remember that a revolution is guided by love. It's about love. It's about being able to connect with people on a real issue. I think that's where the real struggle uh, is right now. So last question that we have, and then we're going to open it up for questions from the audience is um, for the three of you, Eduardo, Paul, and Maesha, all three of you are involved in national work and national strategy building. And I'd, I'd love for you all to have um, a moment to talk a little bit about the connection from local to national and the work that you're involved in. I would say the, the, the major push, both nationally and locally, is, is can be put into two major areas. One is we're still pushing for legislative change. Currently, our national campaigns are to push Congress to pass a clean DREAM Act, meaning a DREAM Act that does not include more militarization, does not include funding for a wall, does not include uh, more tracking and more surveillance 
for immigrant uh, and, and expands it not to just create this narrative of those that are deserving and those that are not. But at the same time, what I think is, is really important is the community, is making that change in, in people's minds to not feel like everyone is against each other, that they can't trust each other, that their neighbor is out to get them. Um, we need to get to a place where people trust their community, where their community knows each other and um, and that's something very important that, that I like to cover a lot with the, the trainings I conduct is creating those safe spaces where people can trust each other and and are not reporting each other to ICE or reporting each other to law enforcement or even worried about that sort of thing, you know, just enjoying the human experience as much as we can in this, this uh, tumultuous world. But um, it really is that building community that will make for safe communities, that everyone knows each other, talk to each other, people know each other's stories, um, each other's humanity, which is so often robbed, uh, especially from minority or, or, or targeted groups. Thank you. So the ACLU, I wanted to talk about just briefly two major projects that we're working on nationally that we are part of here in New Mexico as well. And one of those is around border militarization. We work with a lot of great partners in the southern part of our state uh, to ensure that, like you said, Eduardo, the no boots, no beds, no wall. We don't want to see further drones at the at the um, at the within the 100 mile zone within the border. We don't want to see more technology being deployed at the border. Uh, there's something really scary out there right now called iris scanning technology that a lot of the the sheriffs and the counties along the border are are trying to use so that they can create a database of people that have crossed uh, the border uh, just by scanning their eyes. Um, and also, uh, you know, something along uh, what you said, Eduardo, with the detention centers. We don't want to see more detention centers here in New Mexico. And there's a real risk uh, here in New Mexico because we've got so many private prisons uh, that there's a profit motive that, um, you know, these detention centers, uh, like you were alluding to, they, they've got a bottom line and they want to see more and more people in there to keep their profits up. And so that's not what we want for New Mexico. So the second front I wanted to talk about was police reform. And police reform at the national level, uh, we're really working a lot on bail reform. And we want to make sure, like Maesha is saying, that bail reform is not just about shifting people from the local county jails onto electronic monitoring and onto all these other uh, community alternatives, as they call them, where people end up paying a lot of money and being caught up in all these violations of probation and parole. That's not what we want to see. We want to see real meaningful bail reform where people are not held uh, because they are unable to make the payments to, to be released. We're also looking at the issue of the uh, pretrial risk assessment scores that you mentioned, and that, that's something scary too. Um, it's something that was just unveiled here in Albuquerque just this summer, uh, something called the Arnold Foundation pretrial risk assessment score, and it's something that we're, we're tracking very closely because there's a danger that this could just continue to exacerbate the problems and racial disparities in our criminal justice system. So we want to make sure that doesn't happen. And the last thing, uh, just generally, that we're working on is, is militarization. And uh, what that looks like, whether it's at the border or whether it's right here in Albuquerque, uh, is we don't want to see police equipment that's meant for battlefields uh, in all over the world coming back to our streets. We don't need mine-resistant vehicles and rocket launchers 
and all this drone technology, all, that's all legal under the federal government's 1033 program. And we don't want that here in Albuquerque. And so we're fighting back and uh, trying to make uh, ordinances in all, in all the different towns that would push back, uh, basically saying we don't want this for our communities. Thank you. Maisha. With CMJ, we know that on the national level, considering the political climate, that we've kind of facing an uphill battle. Um, so we're working really closely with some of our magnet partners um, to create a space where communities that are directly impacted by these technological solutions really have a voice and a say around how they're being used. Uh, so one example in terms of pretrial risk assessment is the work we're doing with Hannah from uh, the Media Mobilizing Project on developing a set of guidelines and principles um, where essentially the gist of it is that these risk assessment tools should have heavy oversight and should be used to reduce our incarcerated population, which requires us to have a really critical conversation about the data that's being used, right? And then with electronic monitoring, we're you know, partnering with um, James Kilgore, uh, a Soros fellow, around developing another set of guidelines and principles around the use of electronic monitoring um, and making sure that people have you know, uh, the right to move around and make sure that they can do their daily basic needs, right? The thing that's really key is making sure that the voices of those that are impacted by these solutions um, really do have a say in what and, and how they're being used because currently electronic monitors are just being used, right? Pretrial risk assessments are just being used and the community isn't having a say around how these things are being used, so. Thank you. Again, I know that we're really just uh, skimming the surface on all of this. Um, are there questions? My name is Roberto Royval. I'm with Southwest Organizing Project. If I can, I'd like to just give a quick uh, quote and then ask a quick question. A uh, quote of one, one of my favorite heroes. Al riesgo de parecer ridículo, el revolucionario está guiado por grandes sentimientos de amor. And that is by Che Guevara. He said at the uh, risk of being ridiculous, the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. So I definitely share that. And this question is for Aaron, just real quick. Um, you're talking about the infiltration by the FBI and Quintel Pro uh, with the Black Panthers in the 70s. We also got infiltrated here at the Chicano movement in New Mexico in the 70s, and it crippled us for a while. It took us a while, and we're, we're continuing to try to rebuild that movement all together. And uh, at what level do you see that infiltration going on today? And for instance, how many agents do you think are here tonight? <laughs> well, I don't even think that we should even think about that, because <laughs> that would only separate us. Um, but you know, yeah, they still use infiltration, you know, that's, that's still very much a part of their tactics, and um, you know, that will always be a part of their tactics, so, you know, um, we always have to keep that in mind, but at the same time, we can't let that stop us from organizing and moving ahead. Um, I'm here from the Bay Area. Um, I've had my whole adult life here, but was uh, came here from Berkeley. Um, and I always respected the Panthers so much. And you guys had, you were a community. You were families. You were serving children. You were feeding kids breakfast. You know, what things are we missing 
that we could maybe replicate that would help bring us together and maybe, you know, diverse people in our community together? Well, um, you know, one thing that happened recently in Houston after the floods, that there were a lot of different people that formed their own teams, construction teams, and went house to house, block to block, and helping people to tear down their homes and uh, helping them with those, those types of things. There were some people that got together and opened up a food kitchen where people who had food would call in and, and donate it, and people who needed food, uh, you know, could get food. And because the uh, governmental agencies were, were not there, they weren't able to really help with a lot of people. So the people came together and helped themselves. And that's, that's what we have to do. I mean, it, it's a shame that we have uh, 75,000 homeless people in Los Angeles, the second largest homeless encampment in the world next to Sao Paulo, Brazil. You know, we got 50,000 homeless people, homeless children in New York. And, you know, I, Seattle, Washington, where I'm from, you know, there are at least eight tent cities that exist, at least 15,000 homeless people in the richest city in America. You know, those, th those things should not exist. They didn't exist when I was growing up. You know, we, we didn't see that type of thing, you know. There was always, we had a, a, a community, you know, and, and you didn't allow somebody, particularly in your family, to live on the streets. Now, I was in Palestine uh, a while ago, and uh, I noticed that there were no homeless people in Palestine because they made sure that everybody had somewhere to live. People need things now, you know. You know, we can come together and help different communities and help families that are that are struggling and that need our help because things economically are only going to get worse so we might as well start learning how to rely on ourselves we can't rely on the government we can't rely on them we have to rely on ourselves if we're going to survive so one last comment or question and this is for Aaron Dixon thank you so much for sharing your storytelling um, with us it's certainly appreciated. I feel such a strong sense of purpose throughout your book. What sort of advice do you have for young freedom fighters who want to cultivate purpose through their work? Well, I think the most important thing is connecting with your inner self and learning how to tap in into your intuition. And uh, we use our intuition a lot, you know, and our intuition guided us oftentimes uh, when we needed to be saved. But just learning how to connect with your inner soul, your inner heart, and understand that connects with, uh, with not just yourself, but your family and your community and everybody out there in the world. You know, we're all interconnected as human beings. And that, um, you know, we, we come to this earth with a purpose. We all have some type of purpose. You know, that, that's what drove me, that's what drove all of us, you know, my whole generation. We had that, you know, we, we had rage. Rage doesn't exist anymore, but we had rage. Rage is where you don't care about your life. You don't care about dying. You just don't give a damn. And that rage doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. They've taken that rage away from us. 
but we still have uh, a lot of people coming there. There's a lot of tremendous work that is going on in America. You know, the sister next to me, she just talked about some of those things, and Eduardo and, and the attorney here, you know, just talked about some of those things. And there's just really a lot of amazing work going all over this country in little groups. You don't hear anything about it. Local politics is one of the places that we can have a major effect. The fact that in Seattle, Washington, they elected a socialist, uh, Kasharma Savant, and she brought the $15 minimum wage. She's, she's doing uh, a lot of things around taxing the wealthy. Um, so there's a lot of things that we can do. Well, you know, we could win a lot of these battles, you know, but, but it, it does take commitment, it does take a level of commitment. You know, we have to be committed, you know, and that, that's what it's all about because that's how we're going to make the change. So um, I, I hope that that answers your question. And if I could, just summing up a little bit of what I've heard this evening is... I think really the importance of connection and how connection is tied to awareness and education. And so being aware of really what is happening is critical to um, creating change and, and creating really safety for our families, safety the way that we define safety. So understanding what's happening and being connected to groups like the Center for Media Justice, to groups like Generation Justice that help to bring some of this information to the community, to groups like United We Dream, the New Mexico Dream Team, and this ACLU. Um, educating ourselves and being connected by learning about the history and, um, for example, the book that is here this evening to really understand that lived experience. Um, and the, and if we're going to resist all of this that is being thrown at us, what feels like every single day it's something more and something new that has been planned for a long time that's just surfacing right now, probably, we've got to be connected. A couple of you, Aaron and Eduardo, spoke to the human connection. And it's, it's one thing, and these devices are tools, but they're also tools that have and the software is, we know now, has been put together in a way that works with our neuroscience to get us so addicted to them. And that disconnects us. And so as we did the ceremony earlier to try to, to, try to look for healing and balance was what we opened up with this evening. It's to find that balance between having the connection of knowing what's going on um, with all that's coming at us, with all of the ways that there is resistance, but also to be balanced, to be with each other, and to sit with each other as human beings, um, to listen to each other's humanity, as you so eloquently said, Eduardo. Um, and to, to take that time is part of the resistance, because as several of you have said, it really is about love, and revolution is about love. And we can't have love with each other if we're not really connected and if we can't look at each other's eyes and, and see the spirit that is behind those eyes. And so I think it's about balance. Um, and I think that that side of the balance of being connected to each other is what helps us stay out of the fear. And the fear is how we get controlled. 
And so um, that's what I heard tonight. And again, I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time. Um, none of you got enough time this evening, but I want to encourage our community members that are here to find ways to connect with you for those of you who are in Albuquerque and those of you who are not in Albuquerque, Myasia, that we find a way to, to connect with you and continue, you young sister that you are, that is so wise, that you continue to teach us. Can we please have some love for this panel? Come to the end of another great program. We'd like to thank our panelists, Aaron Dixon, Maisha Hayes, Paul Heidel, and Eduardo Esquivel. And thank you to Stephen Renderos and the Center for Media Justice for all your amazing work to protect and empower our communities. If you would like to learn more about criminal justice work and reform, surveillance, or digital security, we encourage you to visit centerformediajustice.org and magnet.org. That's mag-net.org. Production assistance tonight came from Moises Villanueva and Roberta Rael. And thank you to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. And thank you to La Placita Institute for helping to host the evening. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for helping to bring you, KUNM listeners, the voices of young people in New Mexico. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and rate us. We're also active on social media, so make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Conalma Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. I'm Kateri Zuni. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock.